Elements in the West are once again adopting the pagan orientation to nature, to creation, and to the human being. And this aspect of the culture, therefore, turns against the morality of the Hebrew Bible. Smith's point, then, is that the time is not yet over when we must summon the courage to not do as the Romans did. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 183, When in Edom, I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. What was the most impressive moment in human history? What country or empire embodied excellence in the way that it served as a model toward which we should all aspire, ensuring the happiness of its citizens? For Edward Gibbon, one of the most famous historians who ever lived, the answer was obviously Imperial Rome from 96 CE to 180. He writes, quote, If man were called upon to fix the period in the history of the world during which the history of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. The vast extent of the Roman Empire was governed by absolute power, under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. The armies were restrained by the firm but gentle hand of four successive emperors, whose character and authority commanded involuntary respect. As I read this quote from Gibbon, I suddenly thought to myself, wait a minute, I know those dates. Wasn't there one people who saw this empire as the embodiment of evil? A people who over this very period rebelled and resisted the Romanization, the paganization? by the Emperor Hadrian, of the sacred site where this people worshipped the being they believed to be the one true God? There was indeed, and the Jews would no doubt feel very differently about Gibbon's description. Interestingly, Gibbon makes clear that he, as a historian, is quite annoyed with this one rude, tiny people who didn't go along to get along with the Romans. He writes, quote, We have already described the religious harmony of the ancient world and the facility with which the most different and even hostile nations embraced or at least respected each other's superstitions. A single people refused to join in the common intercourse of mankind. End quote. Gibbon seems grateful for the Roman war on the Jews and somewhat upset that the Jews did not see fit to play along with the pagan culture of the empire. He writes further of the Jews, quote, The sullen obstinacy with which they maintained their peculiar rights in unsocial manners seemed to mark them out a distinct species of men, and adds that, Neither the violence of Antiochus nor the arts of Herod nor the example of the circumjacent nations could ever persuade the Jews to associate with the institution of Moses, the elegant mythology of the Greeks. End quote. For Gibbon, it seemed to have been a bit galling that the Jews resisted the intrusion of pagan culture. And Gibbon is stunned that even as the biblical Israelites succumbed to the pagan temptation again and again during the period of Scripture, their Jewish descendants sent into exile by the Romans Someone who had learned to resist the allure of idolatry despite Roman power. Whereas he writes, quote, In contradiction to every known principle of the human mind, that singular people seems to have yielded a stronger and more ready ascent to the traditions of their remote ancestors than to the evidence of their senses. End quote. Indeed, the Jews did refuse to go along to get along, which is, of course, why the Jews are still here and the empire of ancient Rome is in ruins. And in resisting the pagan pressures of Rome, the rabbi chose as one of their pole stars, a prophet who doesn't make mention of Rome, but who, for the Midrashic tradition, emerges as a hero who could inspire the Israelites not to do as the Romans did. We come now to a biblical book that is one chapter long, and it is a prophecy by a man named Ovadia, or Obadiah, against the nation of Edom, descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, which dwelled south of the kingdom of Judah. Let us attempt to understand what events are the source of the prophet's anger. Verse 8. 
Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob's shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. What exactly is the source of Avadja's complaint? It seems as if Edom participated in the plundering of the first temple after Jerusalem was breached and burned by Babylon. Indeed, the famous psalm by the rivers of Babylon pleads with God, Zechor Hashem Livnei Edom, remember the actions of the Edomites on the day that Jerusalem and the first temple was destroyed. Thus, the prophet decries the actions of Edom when Jerusalem fell. That is what he means when he speaks of the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Here, however, is what is initially enigmatic. Rabbinic tradition identifies Ovadia with a man who appears in the first temple period in the Book of Kings, long before Jerusalem was destroyed. Why then would Ovadia have been chosen to describe an event that would occur many, many years later? The answer given by the rabbis is a fascinating one, and that is that in their view, Ovadia was himself an Edomite convert. Indeed, to my knowledge, Ovadia is the one prophet in the Bible that the rabbis say was a convert. Ovadia, therefore, was chosen to deliver a prophecy about Edom because he had come from Edom and he had chosen to reject Edom. He had grown up in Edom and had chosen not to do as the Edomites did. Thus, he who embraced the people of Israel is chosen to deliver a prophecy against Edom, which ultimately joined in the attacks on the people of Israel. And rightly understood, Ovadia became profoundly inspiring for the rabbis. Because for the rabbinic tradition, the biblical figure of Esav, the prophecies about the nation of Edom, are constantly applied to a seemingly very different people in a very different part of the world, Rome. Esav, ancestor of Edom, is often spoken of in the rabbinic corpus as the progenitor somehow of the Roman Empire. The link between Edom and Rome is spread throughout the rabbinic texts, but the actual connection between the two is not entirely clear. For one Midrashic source, it was Edomite descendants that ended up founding Rome. Some scholars suggest that the association between the two is itself connected to the legacy of Herod, who was a descendant of Edomites, and his refurbishment of the temple notwithstanding, was seen by the rabbis as a brutal ruler who brought the ethos of Rome into Judea. Be that as it may, one can certainly say that the rabbis saw in the Roman Empire a reflection and refraction of Isaac's original words to his son Esau, by the sword you shall live. As the historian Martin Goodman points out, in his book describing the clash between Jewish and Roman cultures in the first century CE. One of the central differences between the two societies was not whether war should be waged, but rather what is the ideal state of being. As he puts it, quote, Jews as much as Romans viewed war as a natural condition, but unlike Romans, they sometimes expressed a hope that this might change. And Goodman later adds that, quote, this notion of permanent peace, shalom, and an end to war espoused by Isaiah was quite different from the Roman notion of pax which constituted little more than a pause to take stock between victorious and glorious campaigns, end quote. Thus, descriptions of a biblical people that saw war as an end in itself is applied ultimately by the rabbis to Rome. And with the rabbinic linking of Edom and Rome, the seemingly minor book of Ovadia became even more important. It was read every year as the Haftarah after 
the Torah portion of Jacob and Esau. And Ovadia, therefore, came to embody Judaism's resistance to giving up its faith as the Jews were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And we can now better understand why Ovadia was seen as so important and inspiring. After all, if Ovadia had summoned the ability to abandon his Edomite pagan culture, Jews could be inspired by Ovadia's example to remain loyal to the faith that Ovadia had himself embraced. Edward Gibbon is not the only one to glorify ancient Rome's legacy, and his annoyance with the Jews should inspire us to ponder what Gibbon himself might have overlooked. I am grateful for these citations from Gibbon to Professor Stephen Smith, who also notes that Gibbon could only laud Roman civilization as a perfectly happy arrangement as long as he intentionally ignored, quote, the vast slave populations, the ubiquitous brothels staffed by desperate and downtrodden women, the lethal savagery of the gladiatorial games, the widespread practice of infanticide, and the dismal tenement housing afflicted by fire and filth and disease, end quote. All this appears in Smith's important book, Christians and Pagans in the City. Smith's thesis, as I understand it, is that to some extent, paganism is back. And we can only understand tensions in our own culture if we realize this. Ancient Rome, for Smith, is actually not all that ancient. As Smith understands very well, to say that paganism has returned does not mean that people once again believe in Zeus or Athena or Neptune or Ra or Osiris, but to assume that this is the totality of paganism is to misunderstand the phenomenon. What Smith means is that elements in the West are once again adopting the pagan orientation to nature, to creation, and to the human being. And this aspect of the culture, therefore, turns against the morality of the Hebrew Bible. Smith's point, then, is that the time is not yet over when we must summon the courage to not do as the Romans did. Following the linking of Edom and Rome, Edom became a way for rabbinic tradition to describe the state of Jewish suffering and experience of persecution in the Western world. But what is striking about these rabbinic traditions is that as harsh as the prophecies about Edom are, the rabbis also drew on the fact that Edom's ancestor Esau was Jacob's brother in order to speak of the possibility of a genuine bond between Jew and non-Jew. Thus, the Talmud speaks often about the friendship between Rabbi Judah the Patriarch, one of the most important rabbis of the Mishnah, with a Roman leader named Antoninus, in reference either to the Emperor Antoninus Pius, or, as some scholars suggest, another Roman leader. Even more remarkable, perhaps, is a gloss by the 19th century rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who, in his commentary on the Torah, reflecting on the embrace between Jacob and Esau before their final parting, comments that this portends a future time when there will be those that are inspired by the message born by the Jewish people. They, Rabbi Berlin writes, will embrace the Jewish people. And then he continues, we shall return that embrace in brotherhood. Rabbi Berlin himself, in 19th century Eastern Europe, did not live surrounded by philo-Semites. But I have experienced this embrace from so many Americans, from religious Christian Americans. We will describe extraordinary embraces of the Jewish people in America in our discussion of Washington's letter to the Jews soon to come. But today, an embrace of Jewish bearers of the Hebraic tradition is occurring by religious non-Jews in America who suddenly understand that now they are seen by society as Gibbon saw the Jews, opponents of paganism, who refused to embrace the dominant culture. These non-Jewish Americans therefore look to the Jewish story as a source of inspiration. As my friend Eric Cohn of Tikva put it, quote, to halt the dangerous decline into post-Christian chaos, Many Christians have concluded that they need to recover a certain pre-Christian understanding of human life and human nature. That is, they need to return morally, spiritually, politically to the Hebrew Bible, and through it especially to the message of the city of Jerusalem, 
the Jerusalem of old and no less the Jerusalem and the Israel that now miraculously live again, end quote. In other words, now the mysterious endurance of the Jews is a source of inspiration for others. A few years before the Roman period that Edward Gibbon saw as humanity's most glorious, an arch was created in Rome depicting the menorah of the Jerusalem temple being born into the city. On the other side of the arch was etched a depiction of the pagan goddess of victory. The arch was meant to proclaim the defeat of the stubborn Jews that to the chagrin of Rome and of Gibbon refused to bend to the pagan perspective. Many hundreds of years later, as is mentioned in my yeshiva colleague Stephen Fine's book on the menorah, the historian of ancient Rome, Ferdinand Gregorovius, described how one day he wandered into the Jewish ghetto in Rome and saw that the menorah was still a living symbol of Judaism, carved on walls, painted in the synagogue. And he reflected in wonder on the contrast between Rome's arch proclaiming Judaism's death and the living Judaism that he sees. The God of the Hebrew Bible, Gregorius wrote, quote, has proved more powerful than the Capitoline Jupiter, end quote. Judaism has outlived paganism in the past. It will outlive it in the future. And this endurance can inspire all those that treasure the legacy of the Hebrew Bible that we study together. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.